Hear the word of the Lord from Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the fir- very ver- early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Good morning, Sojourn. My name is Paul Ramsey. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, It's a joy to be gathered with you this morning on Easter Sunday. Uh, Today, we are opening God's Word together to the end of the Gospel of Mark, which if you've been with us for some time, you'll know that we've been going through the Gospel of Mark for the past few months. And of course, this morning, we've come to the passage where Mark gives us his account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Easter, or Resurrection Sunday, is at the very heart of the Christian faith. We worship a God who loves us to the point that he took the cross to pay the penalty for the sin of humanity upon himself. And then he rose into newness of life in order to secure our salvation. Because the story of the resurrection of Jesus is at the very heart of the Christian faith, it's probably familiar to most, if not all of us, And with that said, as Christians, we believe, as God's word tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, that God's word is living and active, which means that every time we come into uh, contact with a passage of Scripture, we trust and we believe that God is speaking to us in real time. We're not merely looking at some epigraph written by some long-dead historical figure. We're encountering the God of the universe who created all things, who is very much alive, who loves us, and who, whether we're aware of it or not, is inviting us, beckoning us to listen to his words that he inspired to be written and preserved for us so that he might do work in us for the good of our souls. And so as we come to this passage, this familiar passage, where three women come to the tomb and find it empty, I trust, and I want to invite you to trust with me that God is speaking to us in a particular way through the scriptures, songs, and prayers that we've already walked through and through this passage. And that because of this, we will all leave different than when we arrived this morning. Because of that, it's my prayer in line with what Dodge just prayed, that the Holy Spirit would preach the better sermon to all of us in our hearts, myself included, as we encounter, as we look at this passage together. And so, yes, as we look at this passage, it's simple in its presentation, but of course profound in its implication. And there are three things that Mark points us to that I wanna spend our time on together this morning. We're gonna look first at the unbelief of the disciples. Second, we're gonna look at the patience of God. And then third, we're gonna look at the power of God. 
And so look with me as we begin. Uh, This is Mark chapter 16. I want to read just verses 1 through 3 once again. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone away for us from the entrance to the tomb? So we're entering a sad scene. We're introduced to these three women, Mary of Magdala, who was one of Jesus's closest disciples, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and then Salome, who would have probably been Mary's sister or Jesus's aunt. And so these are three women who were very close to Jesus and who had just watched him die. And the first thing that we notice is that these women were not expecting the resurrection. Jesus died on Friday, and these women would have observed the Sabbath on Saturday, uh, the day of rest, the Jewish day of rest. And then as they woke up on Sunday morning, the third day after Jesus' death on the cross, they are mourning. And they're seeking to honor Jesus by bringing spices to anoint his body in the tomb which they're very much expecting to find dead in the tomb. These women are clearly not expecting Jesus to be alive. And the same is also true, we know, of the other disciples. The Gospel of John describes the disciples as having scattered after Jesus' death. They're hiding behind closed doors. They're defeated in spirit. They're fearful for their own lives. Their leader has just been executed by the Romans for insurrection, and they're, they're afraid that his followers are going to be the next ones the Romans come for. We have the benefit of thousands of years of rehearsing the fact that Jesus' death was an act of incredible love and a a great victory. But if you go back to the moment of Jesus' death and the immediate aftermath of his death on the cross, and you start to think about it through the eyes of an ordinary Jew living under Roman occupation who may have been excited that Jesus was this man who came as the Messiah, You might have had a little bit of hope, maybe, in Jesus as the one who is doing these mighty works, that he might be the promised one who would come in and usher in the kingdom of peace that God had promised. For this person, Jesus' death was a hard pill to swallow. The theologian N.T. Wright puts it well. Young hero wins hearts. Had there been newspapers in Jerusalem in the year we now call A.D. 33, this was a headline you would not have seen. When Jesus of Nazareth died the horrible death of crucifixion at the hands of the Roman army, nobody thought him a hero. Nobody was saying as they hurriedly laid his body in a tomb that his death had been a splendid victory, a heroic martyrdom. His movement, which had in any case been something of a ragtag group of followers, was over. Nothing had changed. Another young leader leader had been brutally liquidated. This was the sort of thing that Rome did best. Caesar was on his throne. Death, as usual, had the last word. End quote. Death on a Roman cross was a pretty gruesome way to go. And rather than it being a sign of victory, it was actually, according to the Old Testament law, uh, a sign of being cursed by God, being hung on a tree. There's this scene recorded in Luke chapter 24. Uh, later on, after Jesus' death and resurrection, when the risen Jesus appears to two disciples who are on the road to Emmaus, their disciples who would have been aware of Jesus, who actually knew, were told in Luke 24, that they knew that the women had found the empty tomb, that the women had come back, saying that they had had an angelic encounter telling them that Jesus had risen. They'd heard these things, and still they were disappointed and confused. So they left, they left Jerusalem to go back home. And Jesus appears to them on the road, 
And they didn't recognize him at first, so Jesus asks them why they're sad. And one of them responds and captures probably the sentiment of the moment, saying in summary, haven't you heard? Jesus has been killed. We were hoping that he was the one who would deliver us from the Romans, but we guess not. You see, in many ways, the death of Jesus meant the end of all expectation. When he was crucified and killed, that would have marked in the eyes of many the end of his movement. And so back here in our passage with these three women who were among Jesus' closest disciples, who came to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body, it's clear that they are not expecting the resurrection, which is interesting. The interesting thing about this is that Jesus had prepared them for this. Jesus had told them that he must die, and he had promised clearly that once he died, he would rise again, not just once, but five times in the Gospel of Mark alone. The first time is in Mark chapter 8, halfway through the Gospel of Mark. It says, in Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again, and he said this plainly. That's from Mark chapter 8. And then the second time, don't tell people what you've seen just after the transfiguration until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. A third time, when he's killed, after three days he will rise. A fourth time, after three days he will rise. The last time Jesus tells his disciples about his death and resurrection in Mark is just a couple of nights before this Sunday morning. On the night that he was betrayed, after supper, the last supper that he had with his disciples, uh, Mark chapter 14 says that when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, you are all going to fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So if you remember the passage, towards the end of the passage, what Dodds read for us just a moment ago, the angel reminds them, go to Galilee like he told you. So over and over again, you see, Jesus had told them that he would die and then rise again after three days. Had they weighed his words? Had they prepared themselves for this moment so that when he died, they could be waiting in anticipation for the resurrection? Apparently not. Instead, we find them scattered and hiding. The apostle Peter had explicitly denied three times that he'd been with Jesus. These women who had loved and had been with Jesus have now come in mourning to anoint his body and in a, an almost humorous detail to include, they're so overcome with grief that they forgot the, de the key detail uh, that was necessary in, in order for them to anoint his body. They come and ask each other the question, who's going to open the tomb for us? They're halfway there and they hadn't arranged for the tomb to be opened because it was a very large stone, as we're told. To make a quick side note, uh, about the authenticity of this story. There are a few embarrassing details that would not have been included in this story had the disciples been trying to make up the story of Christ's death and resurrection. Mark tells us here that women who were in a rather bewildered state were the first witnesses to the empty tomb and the only witnesses to the angel's message that Jesus had risen from the dead. The testimony of women would have been considered largely unreliable in the ancient world as first witnesses to the resurrection. And this detail embarrassed certain segments of the early church so much that they sought to play it down. Furthermore, we're told in the other gospels that even when the women returned to the disciples, the group of the disciples, to tell of the empty tomb and tell them what the angels had said, the disciples shook their heads in doubt. They didn't believe them. 
The fact that the disciples were as an entire group caught by surprise by the resurrection would have been quite an embarrassing thing for this group of people to record in the pages of scripture for all the churches, for all of history. Had the disciples been trying to make up, fabricate the story of Jesus' heroic death and victorious resurrection, it's hard to overstate how embarrassing it would have been and thus how unlikely it would have been that this would be the way that it would be fabricated, that such a shocking story is based upon the testimony of women and a group of uneducated, forgetful disciples. But Mark emphasizes this. He highlights the fact that they missed it. And it's worth noting that this is right in line with the whole book of Mark. The gospel of Mark essentially comes in two parts, chapters one through eight and chapters halfway through eight through, through the end in chapter 16. In the first part, Mark is introducing to us, and the big question that he's answering is, who is Jesus? He's introducing Jesus to us, and it's clear he's demonstrating Jesus to be the Messiah, the sent one of God. And it's clear through the, that first half of the gospel of Mark that there's a lot of misunderstandings of who Jesus is. They see him to be a great miracle worker. They're chasing him around so that he can heal them. They're missing his claims about being the Messiah. But then there's this turning point in the middle of the book and Mark begins to answer the question, okay, Jesus is the Messiah. He demonstrates this. And then there's this pivotal story right in the middle of Mark chapter eight where Peter finally, the disciples are missing it. Everyone's missing Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. But then Peter finally, Jesus goes up to the apostle Peter and says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ. And as the reader, we think, oh, finally, the disciples are starting to get who Jesus is. And then right after that, for the first time, Jesus says, basically, okay, good. I'm glad you get that. Now here's what's going to happen. I'm about to die. And after three days, rise from the grave. And then Peter, who showed so much promise in that moment, rebukes Jesus. He says, wait, 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 wait. You're, you're not, you don't need to die. And there's, that's a famous interaction where Jesus' response to Peter is, get behind me, Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's what Jesus says to the apostle Peter. Right there in the middle of chapter 8, and then the whole rest of the book is about Mark answering the question, how is Jesus going to become the messianic king? He's going to become the king through suffering, death, and resurrection. And so here at the end, Mark ends his gospel rather abruptly. We see that throughout the book of Mark, if you've been with us any time, you've seen time and again, the disciples are missing it, everyone's missing it. It's not till the end of Jesus's life after his death that a Roman soldier is the first one to say, surely this is the son of God. Not even one of the disciples, a Roman soldier confesses who Jesus is. But here at the end, Mark ends his gospel rather abrupt, abruptly with the women being told that Jesus has risen, but remaining surprised and terrified rather than overjoyed. This ending is abrupt and it feels unfinished. So unfinished, in fact, that apparently the early church wrote a different ending to the Gospel of Mark. They added more details. If you see, if you're looking at your Bible that's open in front of you, you might notice that there's a note about verses 9 through 20 of Mark chapter 16. Uh, Reed Squires, who's the pastor of Sojourn Montrose, one of, the, one of the pastors at Sojourn Montrose, released a video, uh, posted a video a couple of days ago to the Sojourn Montrose YouTube page. I'm not going to go into detail about reasoning for this. He does a great job in that video. If you, it's easy enough to find. If you need a link, just come ask me and I'll send you a link. But he explains that our belief, my belief, I think the, the clear witness is that those, that was not a writing that Mark included, uh, the ending, Mark chapter 9 through 20, that Mark, the gospel of Mark ends at verse 8. 
rather abruptly. But this all fits into what Mark has been writing about in the gospel. The confusion of Jesus' followers at who he was. Rather than coming as the victorious ruler who would conquer Rome, Jesus instead suffered and was killed by Rome. And through this, paradoxically, he won the ultimate victory. This is what Mark is communicating in this gospel. And if you remember who Mark is, Mark was most likely not an eyewitness to, uh, was not an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry. Mark, we're introduced to Mark in the book of Acts as John Mark. He's one of the close disciples of the apostle Peter, who became something of a scribe to Peter. He recorded Peter's words for him in many cases. And the gospel of Mark is widely understood to be Peter's understanding and recounting of the details of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so in short, then, Peter, the chief apostle, is saying through his disciple Mark in the words of this gospel, look, we missed it. Peter, who had the audacity to rebuke Jesus, and to whom Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Peter, who denied Jesus three times at the end of Jesus' life, this Peter made sure that Mark included these details to show that he, along with the rest of the disciples, missed it. When Jesus died, they were not expecting the resurrection, which brings us to the question of why. Why did they miss it? Jesus had told them repeatedly that he would die and rise again. And at the end, when it happened, they scattered, despairing and afraid, seemingly forgetting everything that Jesus had told them. Why did they miss it? Why were they so mistaken? Sometimes I look back and wonder why the disciples seemed so foolish. Did they not have ears? Were they just deciding to forget everything that they had heard? But if the, the thing is, if I constrain myself to even a little bit of intellectual honesty, I realize that I am just like them. There's this moment earlier in Jesus' ministry when Jesus is in a boat with his disciples and a storm comes up. You may be familiar with the story. Jesus is asleep in the bottom of the boat and the, stone, the storm is getting worse and worse. This is midway through his ministry. He's performed many signs and wonders. He has clearly demonstrated for his disciples that he is worth trusting. And they're in the middle of the storm, and he's sleeping, and the disciples panic, and they wake him up and say, Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus' response comes in the form of the question, where is your faith? To quote Lori Ferguson, excuse me, Lori Ferguson Wilbert, nearly 100% of the time, our faith is in the rational things. We trust that cars go on green and stop on red. We trust that if it rains, we will get wet, and if the sun is shining, we will stay dry. We trust in our taste buds, in our hearing, or our sight. We are very rational creatures with finely tuned instincts for survival. And so when Jesus asks that question during a storm where these seasoned fishermen knew could be deadly for them, I guess I understand the object of their faith in that moment. It's in what they know to be true about the world. I'm like that too. End quote. In a sense, the whole human condition came crashing into focus in that question Jesus asked his disciples in the boat. Where is your faith? When the serpent tempted Eve with the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, even though God had told her otherwise, Genesis 3 tells us that when Eve saw that the tree was good for food, she took it and ate it. 
Where was her faith? Was it in the words and promises of God or was it in what her eyes could see? When the Israelites were fleeing Egypt by many miracles of God who told them, follow Moses, I'm sending him to deliver you and bring you to the promised land. They're in the middle of this miraculous deliverance story and they come up to the Red Sea and they turn around and see Pharaoh's army in panic and they start yelling at Moses. Moses, why? What have, you, what have you done? You've led us out here to our death. Where is their faith? When the disciples saw Jesus crucified, dead, and buried, and they scattered and hid, and these, woman, these women come to anoint his dead body in mourning, where was their faith? The answer is probably best summed up in Jesus' initial response to Peter. After the first time he foretells his death and resurrection, when Peter rebukes him, Jesus' answer brings us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Their faith was not in God, but in themselves, in their own understanding of the way things work, in what their eye could see. They saw Jesus die, and they knew what happened to dead people. They stay dead. They fell back into their own knowledge and understanding. Put another way, it wasn't just unawareness, as if they had never been told that Jesus would rise again. It was unbelief. A writer named Mark Jones once put it this way. He said, unbelief is no small sin, but rather the greatest of all sins. It gives birth to all other sins. Or to put the matter more vividly, unbelief essentially tells God to shut up because we do not want to hear what he says. Just as faith brings us to God, so unbelief causes us to run from God. The very first sin was unbelief, finding its origin in the first perverted question that Satan asked Eve. Did God actually say? Did God actually say that if you eat the fruit of the tree, you shall surely die? That distanced Eve from God to start thinking about her own thoughts. Huh. Unbelief pushes us away from God, from God's words, from God's wisdom, and towards our own selves, our own thoughts, our own understanding. The chief problem is pride, and the chief result is unbelief, rooted in what another writer calls an excess of confidence, a sense that we need not listen to what another says because we are already wise. I don't need what I don't need to listen to what other people say, to what God says, because I am already wise. If I told you that didn't describe me too, I'd be lying. At the time, though, the disciples missed it. Though Jesus had told them that once he died, he would rise again, they couldn't believe it. They saw him die. They fell back into their own knowledge and understanding, gripped by unbelief. They knew what death meant. It meant the end of their expectations. And so they were sad, mourning, distressed, and hiding. And how does God respond? Let's read on. The women have come to the tomb, wondering aloud to each other who is going to roll away the stone. And let's read, starting in verse 4. Looking up, the three women saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. To pause for just a moment, Mark doesn't explicitly tell us that this is an angel, but it clearly fits the pattern of an angelic appearance. Um, the, the phrase he uses for young man is used in other uh, contemporary texts to talk about angelic appearances. And their he, the fact that he's clothed in a dazzling white robe in the middle of a dark cave, um, the fact that they're afraid 
when he comes to the, when he appears to them and that the first thing that he says is do not be afraid. This is how angelic appearances work. Also, the other three gospels tell us that this is an angel. But he said to them, this angel, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And so in the face of the unbelief of the disciples, what does God do? He sends a messenger. He sends an angel to remind them of what he's said, what he said, to tell them what has happened and to give them reassurance. The God of the universe has sent his son to earth to save humanity from their sins. Jesus has taken on flesh. He has worked miracles. He has taught the disciples for years. Repeatedly, he has told them, I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise again. I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise again. And here, when Christ has died and risen from death in victory, God must have been looking down from heaven, looking for faithful believers, eagerly anticipating his resurrection, which he had told them about time and again, and they're scattered afraid for their lives. And here come these women to anoint the dead body with spices. No one seems to be waiting for God to do what he promised. I love being a dad. My wife, Lindsay, and I have two wonderful daughters. Tallulah is six, Harper is four. We have one more on the way due in July, uh, another girl. Of all the people in the world, I think my daughters are two of the easiest people for me to be patient with. I know their age and stage. I know what they're good at and what they're not. I know what's appropriate and what's probably not. And usually because they've got me wrapped around their little, excuse me, because I love them so much, (laughs) it's relatively easy to be patient with them, at least compared with other people in my life. But it's also true that there are times when my patience runs out, when I raise my voice a little bit too sharply, when I impose a consequence more out of frustration than out of love and a desire to disciple them even on my best days, and even when with my two sweet girls with whom it's easiest to be patient, my patience is finite, especially if it's something that we've talked about a hundred times. When I look at how God engages with these disciples who are grown men and women, who he has just died for and who he's told time and again that he would die and rise again, and who are still not getting, getting it, if there were ever a time for God to say, okay, enough, I'm going to grab a different group of people because you guys are missing it. It would have been now. But he does the opposite. Rather than coming to them with a word of rebuke, he comes to them with a word of reminder. Remember what Jesus told you. He's going to rise again and he's going to go with you to Galilee. Well, he's risen and he'll see you when you get there. So go ahead and get going. And did you catch who the angel singles out by name? I have five favorite words in this passage. The first three are right at the heart of the passage. You could probably guess, he is risen. He has risen. Those are the three best words in this passage. My fourth and fifth favorite words are, and Peter. The angels tell the three women to go, tell Jesus' disciples and Peter to meet him in Galilee. And this is a beautiful inclusion. If you're familiar with the story up to this point, I've hinted at it already. You'll know that Peter is probably not doing too well right now. Peter is one of Jesus' closest disciples. He's the leader of the group of disciples. Jesus had told him personally before his death that he knew that Peter would deny him three times. 
And Peter vehemently at the time disagreed. He said, no, Jesus, I am not going to deny you. But then sure enough, at the end, when Jesus was suffering and hanging on a cross, Peter is accused, hey, I think, weren't you that guy who was with Jesus? And Peter denied him three times in a row. And then after the third time, a rooster crows, Jesus had said, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Jesus, Peter denies Jesus the third time the rooster crows, and Peter breaks down and weeps for having abandoned Jesus. So when the resurrection happened and the grace and forgiveness of God was offered by Jesus, if there was anyone who thought themselves too far gone, having thrown away any right to be associated with Jesus, that this message of grace was for the rest but not for him, it would have been Peter. And what does the angels say? Go tell the disciples and Peter that he's waiting for you. If you're in here and you're worried that you have done, that something that you have done has left a mark so dark that you'll never truly belong here, this is for you. If you're in here and there is a hidden sin that you have not confessed because you just know that if you confess it, if anyone knew what you had done, that you would be cast out and you would not have a place in this church, this passage is for you. Sin is messy and dealing with sin is messy. But in the middle of the mess, Jesus calls us by name. He calls Peter by name. And this is especially moving when you consider that Mark was likely Peter's mouthpiece. Peter would have remembered his name being called. We know from the other gospels that the women do wind up returning to the disciples and telling them the tomb is empty. Jesus has risen. Let's go to Galilee. And can you imagine how Peter would have felt when the women came back telling the disciples all that had taken place and then looked at him and said, oh yeah, the angel said your name too. Can you imagine? So in response to the unbelief of the disciples, we come face to face with the nearly unbelievable patience of God. We see this here. We see it throughout the scriptures. When Adam and Eve sin, God doesn't wipe them from the face of the earth. He clothes them himself and then sends them away with a promise of redemption. From there forward, over the generations of God's people, the Bible walks through cycles of brief glimpses of faithfulness to God in the midst of a sea of unfaithfulness. And we see God speak to his people repeatedly, even though you have died, even though you have become an unfruitful vine, there's coming a day when I will restore you, I will renew you, and you will bear fruit once again. Year after year, generation after generation, millennium after millennium, we see God's patience. And why? Why was God so patient? How could God be so patient? The reason that God could be so patient with sinners is because he had a plan. He has known all along what makes for peace. If you go with me for just a moment, at the time of Jesus, the most anticipated role of the Messiah was that God would send the Messiah to deliver them from the Romans. And picture with me for just a moment if the Jewish anticipation had been realized. Picture what that would have been like. A bunch of Romans would have died. And after that, due to the power vacuum that would have been left by the collapse of, a, of such a large swath of territory that was ancient Rome, there would have probably been a lot of other people who would have died too. It might have looked like one of the deliberate stories of the Old Testament when God delivered his people time again, time and again from oppressive rulers, which starting with the deliverance story from Egypt, the Exodus, happened a lot of times. 
The question when we read the Old Testament is why did God's people need to be delivered so many times? It happened a lot. The reason it happened a lot of times is that whenever God's people experienced freedom and prosperity, their sin led them to get lazy with their faithfulness, turn to worship other things, and so God sends nations over them to discipline them for their idolatry. This happens over and over again until eventually, about 500 years before Jesus, there's a final judgment from God and a terrible invasion and exile and removal from the land. When God's people are scattered, the future for Israel looks terrible and bleak. But at the same time as this awful event happened, so too came the word of God through the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, with glorious promises of a future restoration that is far better than any of the deliverance stories they've ever had before. There's a new covenant that's going to be established with his people on that day. God is going to send the Messiah, this new king, this lion of Judah to sit on the throne of David. And it's going to be amazing, but it's also a bit confusing. Because those same prophets, as we read on Good Friday, tell us on the one hand, that this coming one would be a glorious ruler and that kings shall shut their mouths because of him. And then in the same breath, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. We esteemed him not. He was stricken by God and afflicted. And so right in between these phrases, it's almost a confusing word from the prophets. The question rings there in Isaiah 52 or 53, who has believed what he has heard from us? In the Gospel of Luke, we're told when Jesus rode into Jerusalem for the last time, which we remembered last week on Palm Sunday, that as he drew near to the city of Jerusalem, we didn't talk about this last week, but in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus, uh, we're told that Jesus wept over Jerusalem when he draws near. His final entry into Jerusalem where he's going to suffer and be killed, we're told that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, if only you knew what made for peace. They didn't get it. They thought they were the good guys and that Rome were the bad guys, like Matt said last week. And that therefore their deliverance would be from the Romans. That was what was right in front of them. That's what made sense to them. That's what their eyes could see. Rome, got it. I know what deliverance is going to look like. But deliverance from other people was not what God's people needed deliverance from. If there was anything that the history of ancient Israel makes clear, it's that they needed to be delivered not from others, but in a sense, from themselves. It's like a man who's been through a series of jobs where he's been fired or resigned, and on his lips there is everything that is wrong with every one of his previous employers. And then you look on and you start to wonder, there's one thing that all of these stories have in common, and it's you. Maybe you're the problem. And why was God so patient? with his people when they were the problem. How could God be so patient? Because he had a plan and his plan was far greater than they could possibly have imagined because their problem was far deeper than they imagined. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they didn't understand what would make for peace and because that was the whole reason he was there in the first place. Remember Jesus' words on the cross as he was hanging there bearing the weight of sin on his shoulders, hanging on the holes in his hands and his feet. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They don't get it. 
God's plan was to come and secure salvation for the world because he loved the world and because we couldn't do it ourselves. We didn't get it. There is one who knows all things, and that is the one who made all things. God alone can see the big picture, and we can't. We like to think we can. We are experts at thinking that we know the way things work, the problems that we're facing, and the solutions to those problems. We know what really needs to be done. We know who really needs to be dealt with and who the world would be better off without. And so we go around dealing in judgment over one another, doling out justice as we see fit, getting rid of those we think to be the problem. This started in the first generation after Adam and Eve when their son Cain killed his brother Abel. This is happening today, whether on the streets of our cities or in eastern Ukraine. It's the same impulse that led the chief priests and scribes to hand Jesus over to the Romans and the crowds to shout for Jesus' crucifixion. We think we know what makes for peace. But even our best efforts only end in violence, war, and destruction. And at first, it looked like Jesus' death was simply one more death on account of human sin, one more life lost that showed promise and then was quenched. But this time, it was different. This time, violence would not have the last word. The women come to the tomb expecting to find their beloved Jesus' body dead in the grave and hoping to show him the honor of anointing him with their spices, but he's not there. Do not be alarmed, the angel says. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, but look, look where they laid him. He's not here. He's risen. Jesus is alive. They weren't looking for it. The rest of the disciples weren't waiting for the news when they arrived to proclaim it, but it doesn't matter because Jesus is alive. This is the center point of this passage. Indeed, this is the center point of all of history. The Son of God was crucified, bearing the sins of the whole world, and he is risen in order to conquer death and to usher in a new creation. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Because Christ has risen from the grave, we have been brought into the new creation. This is the transition point in all of history. The resurrection is the ultimate vindication of Jesus and every single one of his claims. Without the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross for all of its beautiful symbolism and meaning would be meaningless. And nothing more than the story of a poor fool or a liar who died just like the rest of them. Simply the end of another failed prophetic leader who let his followers down by getting himself killed. We may be so used to the Christian story that we've grown accustomed to the beauty of this sacrificial death, but we shouldn't forget that the cross, which is now a universal symbol of God's love and patience for us, was originally a symbol of suffering and defeat. The Romans executed thousands of their enemies on crosses made of wood. But something happened that made this change from a curse to a blessing, from a sign of defeat to a sign of victory. Something happened that convinced a small outcast ragtag group of ancient Near Eastern Jews that victory comes through suffering. Something happened that took the Apostle Peter from a place where he was denying being associated with Jesus for his life to decades later being crucified himself on account of his faith in Jesus, except when he was crucified, he requested that they crucify him upside down because he didn't see himself as worthy to be hung in the same manner as his Savior. Something happened to change the world. 
And what happened? When Jesus died, he didn't stay dead. Jesus Christ was crucified, died, and was buried in accordance with the scriptures. And on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, Christ rose from the dead. Death could not hold him. Those three blessed words that the angel said to those three blessed women have continued to echo through all of creation ever since. He has risen. And those are the three words that will continue to echo for all eternity. At the heart of Christianity is the truth that victory comes through suffering and the resurrection is where that victory becomes clear. The meaning of the cross changed on that day. The resurrection is what makes the cross not a sign of death, but a sign of the end of death. And why? Because Jesus lives. Jesus lives. The resurrection means that Jesus is alive. All will be well because Jesus is alive. Difficulties will be overcome because Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive right now. He's listening to my words. He's listening to the cry of your heart right now. This is the heart of Christianity. Christianity is not a set of teachings that were given to us to steward on our own and figure out whether we're going to make something of them. Christianity is at its heart of relationship with a living Savior who knows your frailty, who knows you need his help, and is delighted to give it. Like I said earlier, it's easier for me as a father to be patient with my two daughters than it is with almost anyone else. Even so, there are times that when they need help, even if they're not asking for it, internally I say, are you kidding me? We've been over this a hundred times, but do you see that this is not how God is with you? God is always there. He knows the weakness of pain, temptation, and death. He knows that you've been told a hundred times and that you still struggle. And he is waiting with an outstretched arm saying, here I am, take my hand, where is your faith? Don't look at all of that, look right here. If you're anything like me, I know that your faith is in what you can see and understand. And that if it looks impossible to you, that you are sure that it is. But you must understand that because of the resurrection, we can have full confidence that nothing is impossible with God. The pain that you're experiencing right now can be healed. The discipline that you've been striving for is possible. The child you are praying for can be brought to faith. The one who has wronged you can be brought to repentance. The marriage that you wish would end can be restored and renewed to be stronger and more wonderful than you could ever imagine. The climate crisis can be addressed. The political climate can get better. The racial injustice in our society can be eradicated. All of these things can happen. They may not, but they can. In the in-between, while we're waiting to see when God will bring full restoration in each of the circumstances that are weighing on us. In this in-between, when we are most aware of our weakness and inability to do any of these things ourselves, that is where we experience the power of God in our weakness through growing independence and trust that it's a good thing that you don't get your way all the time. It's a good thing that God knows what's best and he is the one bringing all things about in accordance with his purposes. In the resurrection of our Lord, God has revealed his power, his glory, his promise, and his ability to make good on that promise. God is making all things new. 
that is what he's doing in you right now. That's, and that while you are far from finished, that is a work that he will finish. As I prepared this sermon, I looked at the past like five-ish minutes of what I had prepared and I thought of myself as just going through a Rolodex of kind of preacher sayings because it's all good. You've probably heard these things before, but the reason it's all good is because it's all true. Jesus is alive and that is the best news in the world. The words of Charles Spurgeon, listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon. He said this, I suppose some people are enthusiastic about creeds and about dogmas. I don't know, but I know this, that the most enthusiastic people in all the church are those that know him and love him and live with him and serve him. The enthusiasm of heaven seems to be about them. They cast their crowns at his feet and they sing hallelujah when they behold God and the lamb. There is an adoration of persons and their souls are moved by the presence of blessed and divine persons. And so in the church, it should be. We have a living savior, a living captain. He is not out of the fight. He still looks down upon us. He is still fighting with us in the grand old cause. Oh, who of us would be laggard when the captain's eye is upon him? Jesus is looking on. Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, is looking on the course. And so let us run with patience because we look at and are looked upon by him. May this principle of Christian patience move every person here to do something and continue to do something for the honor and glory of his living master. So today, as I close, we've looked at the unbelief of the disciples. We've looked at the almost unbelievable patience of God, and we've looked at the power of God and the plan of God that allowed God to be patient with unbelieving disciples. And so what does this mean for the church? This means that the church is a people seeking to live together in the wisdom of God, not trusting in what our eyes see, not trusting in our ability to bring things to pass, but trusting that the way of victory is not the way of conquest, but the way of humility. Secondly, the church is a people experiencing and sharing the patience of God when we behold the patience of God and experience it not merely as a general teaching from the Bible, but a particular reality for us, it changes us. As we see how patient God has been with us, so too can we be patient with those around us. Patience is a big ask. God's patience with us isn't always a smile on his face with a two-year-old. It's costly patience. It's sacrificial patience. It's patience that cost him his life. It's easy to be patient with people who don't know better, but when we feel like they should, or that they are purposefully not doing what they should, it's hard to be patient, and that is the kind of patience. Those are the kinds of enemies, Jesus says, to treat like friends, that they might become friends. And then thirdly, the church is a people Seeking to live together in the wisdom of God, the church is a people experiencing and sharing the patience of God. And thirdly, the church is a people formed by and trusting in the power of God. How do we do all of these things? How can we exercise patience with the world around us? How can we wait trusting that God will bring about what is right in his time, even if it's not in our timing, because 
We, we do this by remembering that God rose from the grave in power, that he is in control, and that his plan cannot be thwarted. Brothers and sisters, this Resurrection Sunday, may we be a people who look at Jesus and take his invitation to trust in his wisdom rather than our own. May we be a people who are so captivated by the patience of Jesus that we are led to worship and to truly love the people around us the way that Jesus loved us. And may we be people who root all of this in our trust in God who rose from the grave in power to demonstrate his trustworthiness. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this beautiful day, for this annual remembrance of the resurrection. Thank you for taking our sin and shame upon your shoulders, Lord Jesus, and nailing it to the cross. And thank you for rising in power to demonstrate victory over death and sin and to open the doors to eternal life with you once again that we can enjoy today with you as a foretaste of the eternity that we will enjoy with you to come. Please give us faith, Lord. Help us to cry with the centurion from early in the book of Mark. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We are so grateful that you are so patient with us and we ask for your continued patience, not that we can presume on your patience, but that you would shape us by our increasing awareness of your patience with us into people who know your love. Help us to know your love and to share your love with those around us. Empowered by the same power that raised you from the dead, the Holy Spirit, which is in us, uniting us to one another and to you. So please, Lord, speak to us, teach us, call to our remembrance what is good and what is right and what is wise in your eyes and help us to trust in you rather than ourselves. We ask in Christ's name, amen.